Let's ask the Lord to continue to lead us. Father, even as we have been rejoicing, in particular over the past couple of weeks about the resurrection of your blessed Son, so too this morning, fill us with hope because Jesus is our living hope. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, Lord, would you minister to us by your Spirit through the proclamation of your word and through the powerful imagery of communion. To that end, our great God, bless us with your presence this morning, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I have two goals this morning. First, uh, simply to help us prepare our hearts to take communion together in just a few minutes. And second, to introduce this incredible story about the gospel coming to the Gentiles. As we begin and as we think about the gospel moving from Jerusalem to Samaria and to the Gentiles, consider for a moment how it's even possible that we might have fellowship with God and peace with one another. We can't take this for granted because fellowship or unity, peace with one another, it's not the default position for human relationships. According to some estimates, over the past 3,400 years of human history, there have only been 268 years where there wasn't a war being fought somewhere on the planet. But international wars aren't the only place where conflict shows up. Political wars run wild across the headlines and are just scattered throughout social media. Often relational wars are, are fought within families. And if, if you've been a believer for more than two minutes, you also recognize that there is a war that constantly rages within our own hearts. There's a reason that Paul exhorted Christians to put on the whole armor of God. Wars are everywhere. The default setting for human beings and for human relationships is actually conflict, not fellowship, which makes our passage in Acts 10 all the more amazing. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, which we are remembering and celebrating today in communion. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, genuine unity, even between Jews and Gentiles, became possible in the first century. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus, genuine unity between believers from every tongue and every tribe and every nation is still possible today. Our passage this morning is Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 23. Hear then the word of Almighty God. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, 
a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Spirit of the living God, would you lead us now? Indeed, Spirit who spoke to Peter very directly in this passage, would you speak to our hearts now through his words? Spirit, lead us, we ask, and give us the grace to hear what you desire for us to hear. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our beloved Lord, amen. So our main focus this morning is that the cross of Christ 
makes unity possible even with very different people. The cross of Christ makes unity possible even with very different people. Pause. Just look around. (laughs) There are a lot of very different people sitting here. Many similarities, but honestly, would you be hanging out with this exact same people if we didn't share faith in Christ? If we weren't unified in Christ, would you let a guy with this accent talk at you for 40 minutes every single Sunday? I don't think so. But you could see that our passage here breaks out very naturally into two sections. In verses 1 through 8, we see the vision of Cornelius. And then in verses 9 through 23, essentially, we see the vision of Peter. The main idea is that the cross of Christ makes unity possible even with very different people. Now, Luke actually gave us kind of a foreshadowing in the last sentence of chapter 9 about what was going to happen. He says in verse 43, speaking about Peter, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. In order to really get at the essence of the drama of this passage, we have to understand that in many ways, Jews found their identity. They found their very identity as a people and many as an individual in the strictness with which they followed the laws of God. Now, since tanners had to touch dead animals in order to get the skin off so that they could make leather, essentially, they were ceremonially unclean every single day. And this kind of gives us a clue that though the second part of this story is clearly about the conversion of Cornelius and his household and ultimately the Gentiles, this this first half of the story in many ways is about the heart transformation of Peter. Just imagine for a moment. Imagine for a moment that you had Peter's kind of dogged stubbornness. And since the moment you were born, every day ingrained into your head was this idea you are different. You are a member of the people of God. You are one of the chosen of God. So make sure you keep yourself separate from those other nations. Those Gentiles. Don't contaminate yourself. Don't defile yourself by mixing in with them. You are better. You belong to God. Peter, you are holy. Deeply held ethnic and religious prejudices do not vanish overnight. So we need to appreciate how powerful, how dramatic, and how hard all of this is. 
Now, Peter's host here was a man whom the rabbis considered continuously unclean just because of his line of work. Yet, Peter stayed in his home for an extended period of time. In other words, God places Peter in a situation where he is the beneficiary of the hospitality and the generosity of a man who undoubtedly, at least initially, must have made Peter extremely uncomfortable. So what's God doing here? Could it be that he's already softening his heart toward others who are not like him because of about what's about to happen? Now, while Peter is staying in Joppa, there's a man named Cornelius who's in Caesarea, which is about 32 miles up the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, I have no idea if you can see the cities on this, but you can see the blue part, right? On the left-hand side, Joppa's kind of in the middle and Caesarea's uh, just to the north of there. I just want you to have a, a general visual. It's okay if you can't see the names. Cornelius is a Roman centurion, which means he commanded 100 soldiers. He's a Gentile, and he's a member of the Italian cohort, which, which basically just means it's a larger military division, which was probably based in Rome. Cornelius is at home praying at about 3 in the afternoon. While he's praying, he sees a vision that absolutely terrifies him. An angel clearly appears to him and addresses him directly by name. Now, I don't know if that's ever happened to you. I doubt it. It's possible, but I doubt it. I'm quite confident it probably never happened to Cornelius either. But put yourself in his shoes. You are, you are praying fervently to God. And you open your eyes and there's an angel staring at you who addresses you by name. What are you thinking at this moment? Uh, so, what are you doing here? Is this good news or bad news? Right? You, you need to know. You need to know why he's there. What message do you have for me? In Cornelius' case, all he could kind of spit out was, what is it, Lord? In short, the message was, God has heard your prayers. God has heard your prayers, Cornelius, and he's seen your generosity to the poor. This is way before COVID, so he could exhale with all of his might and, and not worry about anybody that was around him. But let's just stop here for a moment. This text reminds us that God both hears our prayers and is acutely aware of our actions. Just because we might not get a personal visit from, a, from an angelic being from a heavenly messenger doesn't mean that our petitions before God have somehow 
slipped through the cracks or gone unnoticed. In fact, the whole testimony of Scripture basically screams the opposite. The truth is there is not one prayer that we have offered no matter how short. There's not one action that we have done no matter how small that has escaped the ever-attentive eye of God. So think about how thrilling and think about how sobering that is. No one else may know what you're doing when you're home alone. And you may feel like you're completely private. Do not think for a moment. Don't kid yourself that whatever you're doing isn't lived out before the face of God and his immediate presence. He knows all and he sees all. And that is incredibly sobering. And it's thrilling. It's incredibly encouraging. Because no one else in the world might have seen some tiny little act that you did as you sought to serve your spouse or a friend or a neighbor or somebody that you can't stand. But you did it anyway. You did it in faith as you responded to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Be assured that you, you did that before the throne of God himself. And he saw every single moment of it. See, this, 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 this text is so helpful because we have a tendency to think that in this world, this world is lived out kind of like in a, in a closet at the end of the hallway in God's house. You know, he doesn't really think about it that often, but eventually he's going to go down there and open it up and probably clean it out. But that is not at all what God is like as he engages with this world. He is attentive at every moment. And he loves to attend in particular to his people. To strengthen them. To answer their prayers. He hears our cries. And he responds. Now, as soon as the angel left, Cornelius obeyed. Also a good idea. He was told to send men to Joppa to get Peter, and so he does. Now, it would have taken probably 10 hours or so for them to to get there, so basically into the next day, the text says. And as they're traveling, and while they start to approach the city, which is about noon time, Peter, unbeknownst to him, of course, that they're approaching, he goes up on the rooftop to pray. He's hungry, and so presumably he told someone to please prepare some food. And while it's being prepared, he falls into a trance. And this really gets at now the heart of the passage. Peter has his own vision. He sees heaven open up something that looks like a giant sheet or maybe a tablecloth, given the context, I don't know, descending from heaven with all kinds of animals in it, including animals that would have been considered unclean and would have just grossed Peter out. Picking up in verse 13 then, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. (laughs) 
But Peter said, by no means, Lord. This is like such a Peter thing to say, right? I'm not aware if there are any other places in the Bible where people disagree with the Lord, but there's at least two or three examples of Peter doing it, right? It's a little insight into his personality. You remember when Jesus told him one time, look, the Son of Man has to suffer and die. And Peter says to him, no, Lord. To which Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) And there's no other dialogue from Peter after that. (laughs) By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. That's extraordinary. And the voice came again to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. I don't know if the original intention was to have it happen three times, but after Peter disagreed, it happened a couple more times to make sure that he gets the message, right? The key question becomes, what does the vision mean? Or maybe more narrowly, even more specifically, and why does it center on food? What is that about? Here we need to not romanticize anything. Uh, We need not just rejoice in the fact that now bacon and sausage are good, as delighted as we are about that. The reason this vision is necessary is because the Jews, in large measure, turned their incredible identity as the chosen people of God, into a reason to look down upon other nations and to even despise them. The reason this vision is necessary is devastating. John Stott summarizes the scope of the issue this way. It's difficult to grasp the impassable gulf that existed between the Jews and Gentiles. The Old Testament, despite its oracles against hostile nations, affirmed that God had a purpose for them. By choosing and blessing one family, he intended to bless all the families on earth. Genesis 12. The psalmists and prophets foretold the day God's Messiah would inherit the nations. The Lord's servant would be their light. All nations would flow to the Lord's house and God would pour out his spirit on all humankind. The tragedy was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election into favoritism, became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions which kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the house of a Gentile, even a God-fearer, or invite such into his home. On the contrary, All familiar interaction was forbidden and no pious Jew would have sat down at the table of a Gentile. This was the entrenched prejudice that had to be overcome before Gentiles could enter into the Christian community on equal terms with Jews and before the church could become a truly multi-ethnic, multicultural society. That's a 
devastating description of reality. In other words, a, a massive shift, a, a cataclysmic, earth-shattering type of change had to happen. I think this is one of the reasons why Paul uses such dramatic language in Ephesians 3 when he's describing these events. Ephesians, in large measure, is like a commentary on the specific events that we're going through right now. So imagine what it would have been like to be a Gentile, given this background that I just described. And to hear or to read these words, spoken to you by a brother in Christ, who is a Jew, who is a Pharisee. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. How sweet would those words have fallen on your ears. Paul goes on to say that this reality puts, puts the manifold or multicolored wisdom of God on display before the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't get any bigger than this. That's amazing. So this is the reason for Peter's vision. And this is the reason it took the cross to bring about a tectonic shift among the people of God. It took nothing less than the death of God's own son to make this happen. The way God set his people apart from other nations The way God designated his people as belonging to him was was largely through the the holy laws that he had given them. His call to them in the book of Leviticus is a call that Peter reiterates in chapter 1 of his first letter to the church. Be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. Our call as believers is this very call to be holy as the Lord our God is holy. And yet, as soon as we declare that, you can can see the temptation that would have been the case for the Jews kind of creeping in. 
consider what are the places where our own personal pursuit of holiness, to be holy as the Lord our God is holy, where do those personal pursuits of holiness end up being opportunities for us where we might look down upon other people, possibly even our own brothers and sisters? So often, the areas that are strengths for us are the places where we first recognize deficiencies in others. Maybe you're particularly disciplined in your quiet times and you wonder, why doesn't everybody do this? Are they just lazy and undisciplined? Maybe you're the first to volunteer at church and and you wonder, why do they keep needing to ask for help? Where is everybody? Maybe you have a, a rich theological understanding of doctrine and you think, why is everybody else satisfied by milk? Or maybe you're quick to pray. You're quick to go to the Lord in prayer. If you see a brother or sister hurting, you are quick to be there and say, can I pray with you? And you wonder, why isn't anybody else responding to the prompting of the Holy Spirit? Uh, the opportunities, the tendencies can be very dangerous just like they were for the Jews. And yet, by faith in Christ, we are to pursue holiness in every area of life. Now, in the Old Testament, the laws which set the Jews apart from the other nations included a strict or rather peculiar diet. So the question becomes, why the focus on food in Peter's vision. Now, Peter, Peter actually, if we skip ahead just for one second to verse 28, Peter interprets his vision later in this section when he says to Cornelius and those gathered, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Let that description that I had from John Stott be turning over in your mind as I say that. But then listen to what Peter says. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So what's happening here with this vision and with the elimination of the food restrictions? I think it's this. Much like Pentecost reversed the curse of Babel, That is, as people who formerly had their their languages confused by God, now through the coming of the Spirit, these same people groups hear the good news of the gospel in their own languages, even though the apostles were speaking Aramaic or Greek. So the, the curse of Babel has been reversed. The curse that was instituted by God has now been reversed. So too, the food distinctions, which formerly separated people groups from one another, between clean and unclean, between defiled and undefiled. Remember, God is the one who instituted these distinctions so that the people could be taken out from the other nations to serve him and to serve him alone. Now, these distinctions, having been eliminated, become the very means of experiencing unified fellowship together through the sharing of meals with one another in Jesus Christ perhaps most specifically, 
to be able to share in a fellowship meal commemorating the death of our Lord Jesus. But think of the practical implications of this. The commission from, from Acts 1.8 is that the gospel will go forth in Jerusalem and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth to the Gentiles. And then imagine the people of God going to all these nations, wanting to share the good news of the gospel with them. And, and these nations say, great, come, come into my home. And they, and they want to share food with them. And they said, oh, sorry, <laughs> we're out on that. But listen to the freedom that we have in Christ. There's some very practical reasons why and some joyful reasons why. I can think of several joyful reasons why it's great that all these foods now have been declared clean. But what made this massive change possible? Again, we go back to Ephesians. I'm so thankful that we just went through Ephesians. You'll recall these words from Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, including food restrictions, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That is simply the good news of the gospel in distilled form. And that's how this passage, that's how this passage points us to the communion table. It is by the blood or through the cross that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down between God and man and between one another. Jesus was able to abolish the law, including laws around diet, because he fulfilled the law on our behalf and because he offered his life as an atoning sacrifice on our behalf for the forgiveness of our law breaking. Therefore, we can now consider ourselves dead to the law and alive in the spirit because we belong to Christ, Romans 7, 4. The reality that frees us to love both God and one another because we now find our distinctive holiness in Christ because of his righteousness given to us is that we further, as the people of God, are no longer defined either by our sin that kept us from God or by the illusion of holy law keeping. Rather, we are defined by the work of Christ on our behalf, and we are identified with Jesus, the absolutely beloved Son of God. So just like the Jews were no longer identified by their law-keeping, neither are we by the excellence of our morality. Ultimately, we are defined 
by the work of Jesus on our behalf. Which is why today is not just a memorial, but a celebration. This is the good news of the gospel that sets us free to love God. And this is the good news that now fuels our unity as believers with some from every tongue and tribe and nation on earth. Don't let the good news of the gospel seem common to you. Just listen to the rhetoric of the day. You would think that destroying people is virtuous. You would think that destruction is good. Give me the hope of the gospel any day over that. Jesus Christ has made a way for people to be unified. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're from. Unity is possible in Christ, therefore, fellowship with God and with one another can be a reality. And that is why we are celebrating this morning. So, as we turn now to the communion table, I want to read something that Jesus said in, in, in Mark chapter 7. Because before we come to this table, Scripture exhorts us to examine ourselves. And the way that I want to do that this morning is to to read something that Jesus said in Mark 7. Then I'm going to kind of pray for us. I'll just kind of guide us by praying for us after I read that particular passage. And then we're going to take communion together. Now, You don't need to be a a member of River Oaks Community Church in order to participate in this table of grace. But you do, however, need to have repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus as the only reason that you are righteous in the Father's eyes. But if that's true for you, you you are welcome to come to this table of grace. We do ask that if you're visiting with us that you be in right standing with your own local church. And if if you're not sure about that, then I'll be up here and, and you can come you can come and talk with me. Now, the way that communion will work uh, is that we'll come up row by row. Just kind of wait for the row in front of you to sit back down. And I think the easiest way to do this is to uh, just come up. There's obviously two aisles here. Just whatever aisle you come up, just return to your seat in the same aisle. That way you can just kind of be aware of everyone else around you and do your best to be respectful of, of, of their space. And then we'll all sit down together and then in a few minutes we'll, we'll take the elements together. Just remember there's, <laughs> there's, there's two films on there. You have to negotiate the first one to get that thing off to, to get at the wafer and then there's a second one for the juice underneath that. Um, the, the wafer and the juice are together in these individual cups and then the middle uh, tray has a gluten-free option if, if you're interested, okay? Let me read from Mark 7. These are the words of Jesus. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters into, not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? 
And then Mark adds this comment, thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So let me pray for us as, as we're thinking about this reality. Lord, in the first place, you have called us to be holy as you are holy. So I pray that we would take an honest look at where some of these thoughts and some of these practices may be showing up even in subtle form in our own hearts and lives. So Spirit, would you reveal that to us? Whether it's evil thoughts or sexual immorality or deceit or foolishness or pride, would you, would you show us Would you show us where that's playing out in our hearts and lives? And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would work in such a way that we, you would cause us to be quick to repent, quick to confess and quick to repent so that we might turn to the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, which we are celebrating this morning. Spirit, as you convict us of sin and as we repent of that, then would you, would you do a glorious work and remind us at the core of our being that, that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover our sin, that he paid for our evil thoughts, he paid for our sexual immorality, our theft, our murder, our adultery, our coveting, our wickedness, our deceit, our sensuality, our envy, our slander, our pride, and our foolishness. He paid for it all. They were nailed to the cross. And so I pray that we would come to this table rejoicing, rejoicing in our spirits because of our confidence of what Jesus has accomplished for us, which we believe by faith. And so would you lead us then? Would you lead us during this time, Spirit? Would you care for our souls? Bring conviction where there needs to be conviction and bring hope and consolation where there needs to be comfort. Above all, lead us. Lead us during this time, we pray. In the blessed name of Jesus, amen.